Dan Rather is the best at digging up unbelievable stories. But if you're looking for some surprises, check out Music's Greatest Mysteries, the podcast. Hey there. Welcome to Dan Rather's The Big Interview, the podcast for music lovers, full of thought-provoking interviews and conversations like you've never heard before with some of the biggest names in the biz. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from your favorite artists, from classic rock and country to timeless music everyone enjoys. We cover it all right here on Dan Rather's The Big Interview. So sit back and enjoy these magnificent stories from the artists that lived it. Here's your host, Dan Rather. Tonight on The Big Interview. At home in Nashville with country music legend Vince Gill. Everybody's ready for the next big thing. I like that this house is uh, is filled with music and musicians and we gather around in here and play music together and go break bread together. I love the spirit of that, what it does to my home life. He has been a leading voice in Nashville for decades and has plenty to say about the state of the music business. Do you like the way country music is going today? It's not my cup of tea, but I don't know if I was Merle Haggard's cup of tea when I first got going. Vince Gill has won nearly every music award imaginable. Tonight, a candid conversation with what it took to make it to the big time. You know, it's been all these years going, and is this ever going to happen? And when it finally did, it was like a relief to a lot of people. Nobody he is a harmonizer, a songwriter, now a grandfather, and by all accounts, a really nice guy. Hear the mighty rush of the engine. Vince Gill, tonight on The Big Interview. He started out as a kid from Oklahoma who just loved to sing and play the guitar. Didn't matter what kind of music, bluegrass, rock and roll, or country. Vince Gill knew from an early age he wanted to be a musician. Little did he or anyone know that he would go on to not only make records, but break them. Winning the most Grammy Awards of any male artist in country music ever. He also won Best Male Vocalist five years in a row at the Country Music Awards. He is known for his deeply personal and intimate songwriting and perfect harmonization. Nowadays, he's spending more time around his hometown of Nashville, playing with members of a local band called the Time Jumpers. You'd look so pretty riding in my Cadillac. Well, let's find a cozy little table in the back. 
We sat down with Benskill at the music studio he's built in his home, which he shares with his wife, also a famous singer, Amy Grant. Well, Vince, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate you well, taking time to do it's it. It's a great honor to meet you. Well, it's my pleasure and honor to meet you as well. Where are we here? We're at my house. Amy and I live here in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, west part of town. and We've lived here about 15 years. and. She was kind enough to let me convert about half the house into a recording studio so I could uh, bring all my mates over here and make noise and, and, and have a creative outlet in my home. You know, that's been the greatest gift of all through all of this is to be able to be creative in the place where I live instead of have to go somewhere. And uh, I've, I've loved every minute of it. There's, there's some, been some great music played in these rooms. You've had tremendous success. How did you get where you are today as a professional? Man, um, I just kept putting one foot in front of the other. And in all honesty, I, I came at my career probably much more with a musician's mindset than I never had. I never had this view of the brass ring of being this famous artist. None of that was ever really um, running through my mind. That was not the the pictures I would see. My pictures were always, I want to be, I want to be a better musician, I want to play with better musicians. Every step I take, I want it to be um, in a way that I feel like I'm improving. And so there, there, were, there were times in my career that, that I would make a decision that some people would scratch their heads and say, why on earth would you turn that down and take that? And I always felt like it was always music first and everything else would take care of itself. I find this very interesting. So the driving dream was not to be a center stage singing star. And, and in those early days, if I aspired to be anything, it was one of those musicians that I saw on the back of a record jacket. I wanted to be that guy playing that guitar on that record. I wanted to be that guy singing that harmony on that record. That's just how I, you know, it's how I grew up, and and I always liked the collaboration. I liked the conversation that 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 being musical, you know, it brings. And music was never that fun to play by myself. Even today, I I carry a band out there with me, and they're all great musicians, and most of them are probably better than I am, in so many ways. And to me, that's the way to improve: is surround yourself with better people, and you will, you'll get better. And they would tell you pretty much straight up that I'm just the guy in the I'm just another guy in the band. But when, why, and how did you make the transformation from this young man who wanted to be the perfectionist musician? When did it begin to fold into you were going to sing? Well, I I realized that at some point after I'd played for a long time that I could sing, and and then as as I went along, it was interesting that my singing would more often be the, the thing that would be the catalyst to something good happening, and, and it always overshadowed my musicianship in, in so many ways, and especially after I started making records and trying to front a band and, and be an artist and all those things. I always knew that it was my voice that had, a, had something special about it. You know, I'm not a fool, and my ears told me that, and so... I knew that if I was going to have a career in, in music, I needed to be a singer, and I wanted to be a songwriter. All the people that I 
admired the most, they wrote their own songs. So it was important to me to, to write them as well. All the people that you knew and admired the most, they would include? Oh, Hank Williams, Merle Haggard, Buck Owens, uh, the Beatles. I mean, it was, it was all over the map. It was Little Richard. It was, it was Chuck Berry. It was Ray Charles. It, it didn't matter what it was. I had a, I had a hunger for, for all things music. And from where did that spring? Oh, uh, I guess probably um, my family was very musical uh, in, in their love of music. My father was a, a novice guitar player, a novice banjo player. And to me, he was, you know, I'd watch him play and think he was Chet Atkins, you know, when he played that guitar as a kid. But um, later to find out, he was just, just very, very average, you know, as a player. And, and they loved it. You know, they listened to records all the time. I was the youngest, so my big brother had records. My big sister had records. They had records. My grandmother played piano in church. You know, I was, you know, I was consumed and around music from day one. And I don't think there was ever any question of what, what I was going to be driven to want to pursue and, and be moved by. Did you ever think about going to college? Not once. I didn't. And you know what was cool is my parents didn't didn't even they didn't even bring it up, you know. I mean, it'd have been different if I was 18 and just kind of thinking about being a musician or this or that. But I had 10, 12 years of of playing and practicing and playing out, doing gigs, making records. Right. I think that it was pretty. I was lucky in that early on it was it was apparent what I wanted to do and. And my mom was a believer in that she she wanted me to be a happy kid. She said, I'd rather you be a happy kid than a rich kid. I'd rather you be a happy kid than a rich kid. Mm -hmm. No objection if you can be both. Well, I mean, yeah, but there was, there was, there was, a, there was a whole lot of lean years, Danny. <laughs> I guarantee you. But, you know, and, and that's what's beautiful. And I didn't understand that at the time as a 17-year-old kid. I didn't get what a great gift that was they were giving me. Right. Because they didn't browbeat me and said, no, you gotta go to college, you gotta get a real job, you gotta quit messing around with this. And not once, I don't ever remember a conversation like that. It was just always, keep after it, you're getting better. And it was so, so great of a gift I was given. I'm up a home and it's closing time. I read a holy Bible and I walk the line. I can't wait to see what my baby's gonna do to me. A little guitar slinger. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Vince Gill. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Vince Gill. Give me just one more last chance Before you say we're through I know I drive you crazy, baby It's the best that I can do Although Vince Gill is all about country music, he didn't start out that way. Just out of high school, he joined a bluegrass band and moved to Kentucky. Then it was a country rock band called Pure Prairie League. It was with this group that he had his first top 10 pop hit, Let Me Love You Tonight. Let me love you tonight. There's a million stars in the sky. Let me love you tonight. 
1983, Vince signed a solo deal with RCA. And in the midst of forging his own career, Gill was offered a gig in the British rock band Dire Straits. The musician in Gill said yes, but the struggling solo artist said no. If Vince didn't believe he could make it, no one else would either. So Vince turned down the opportunity with Dire Straits. It was pure country that became Vince Gill's passion, and by the 1990s, he was a superstar with hits like Don't Let Our Love Start Slipping Away. Well, now at age 57, you're a leader in the industry, and you have been for some while. Do you like the way country music is going today? Uh, I do. It's not my cup of tea, but I don't know if I was Merle Haggard's cup of tea when I first got going. Good point. Might and not I, have been. Yeah, and I don't know if Merle Haggard was Roy Acuff's cup of tea. I don't know if Roy Acuff was Jimmy Rogers' cup of tea. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and do. so to me, to be that guy that, that looks back and you just kind of, I think you sound like a curmudgeon, you sound like you're bitter, you sound like all those things. And, and I, love, I love seeing kids come along and be moved by what they're moved by. It doesn't matter that they're, I don't, I don't care that they're not moved by the same things I am. They shouldn't be. There's a great old joke that a friend of mine, a comedian, says, hell, my granddad used to say if we all liked the same things, everybody would be hitting on your grandma. <laughs> So I think it's okay that we like different stuff. But, you know, I really, I love seeing um, young people just out there doing what they love. It doesn't, there's not a rule book that says you have to like this or it doesn't count or you're not as good or I'm not going to be that guy. You know, and I, there's a lot of it I'm not crazy about, but that's, it's not personal. It's, it's, they don't have anybody cheering for them harder than I do. You have a daughter who's talented. What's it, what's it like singing with her and trying to bring her along? Well, I, um, I have four daughters. Amy and I have five children between us, four girls and one boy. And, and I, I had the first child, Jenny, in my first marriage. Amy had the, the middle three in her first marriage. And then we had Karina together, who was almost 14 in just a few days. And, and Karina might be might be the best singer in the family at 13. She's killing it, you know, and it's so much fun to, she doesn't know we, that we can hear her up in her room, but she's got her piano set up there and a guitar, and, and she can kind of come, she comes through the, the vents, you know, the air conditioning vents, and we'll sit down here and just listen, and she's up there wailing like Aretha Franklin, you know, just cutting loose and free as a bird. But I get so much pleasure out of uh, watching my kids be inspired by music, because it was, when people say, well, why would you want somebody to follow your footsteps and be in that music business? And I, had, I said, I had a great life. I recommend that to anybody. You know, I yeah. loved it. And my daughter's 32, just had a baby, so I had my first grandchild. His name is Wyatt, and that's been the greatest gift in, in life, is getting to be a granddad. But she sings, and she sings brilliantly, and, and, and she's trying to, to find her way through it all and, and, and I've been helping when I can only when she wants me to and not being an overbearing dad and 
because just let her use me when she needs me. And, and we made a record here at the house, and it's fantastic. And now that she's had her baby, she's kind of keen on getting out there and seeing if anybody's interested in it. And what I get from doing that with her is is something that that I don't know a lot of people would understand, but I finally get to sing with somebody in my family that has the same bloodline that I do. And as a kid, I was an Everly Brothers freak. And I was, any family harmony, when you put people that were related and they sing together, man, there's just something in the DNA. Well, that, the Carter family, for yeah, example. There you go, our first first people we ever had. and And so after all these years of doing what I've done, supporting everybody else and being their harmony singer on their records and doing all those things I've done over the years to finally hear it in real time, to hear my bloodline sing with me, I get to feel like, I call her my little Everly, Jenny, when I talk about her. As in the Everly Brothers. As in the Everly Brothers. And, uh, and she's, she's gifted and, and really wants to do this. And, and both of Amy's girls are, are talented too. They don't seem to have the interest in doing it. Karina, the 13-year-old, she's going to be the one to put us all to shame, I think. <laughs> well, we keep an eye on her and, yeah. <laughs> and an ear tuned for her. I want to come back to something you said before, that you have your studio in your home. Mm. I know many artists, and you must know many artists, who say, I don't have my studio in my home. I mean, the home is the home, and, quote, I work better when I'm in studios away. I'm married to a painter. My wife, Jean, is a painter. She thinks she does her best work if she has a studio away from our home. But with you, it's just the opposite. Yeah, it is. I think maybe because um, I lived in a home that didn't feel like that. That music was maybe not as prevalent as I wished it would have been. And that's my own fault, you know. But uh, once again, and, and another reason why it works is the technology. You know, is the technology has changed so much that you don't need all the real estate that you used to because of, of all the advancement of, of what they've done in this stuff that you need a, an iPad and a microphone, you know, and you can go make records, <laughs> really. And uh, so it just it just made sense, you know, and rather than if somebody wanted me to come play on a record, I don't have to take all my stuff, go somewhere, I go, just send me the files. Oh. And it's remarkable. They just pop up there on the computer and I plug it in, and away I go, and send it back to them. It's like <laughs> unbelievable how much fun that is. But I, I like that this house is uh, is filled with mus music, and musicians, and we gather around in here and play music together, and go break bread together, and then go make some more music together. And and I love what I love the spirit of that, what it does to my home life. Feels like Listening to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. We'll be back with Vince Gill. Welcome back to Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Today's guest is Vince Gill. Look at you. Still pretty. Is it Look at me, still crazy over you. 
tour as much as you ever have? No, I don't tour like I used to. Life and, and different times change all of that. I mean, when I first, uh, I started playing with a band called Pure Prairie League back in the late 70s, and these guys did 250 shows a year. I've made a few records with them and had a couple of hits. and got to be on American Bandstand and some shows like that, and it was a lot of fun for a young kid, and they were great to me. And But they toured so much, and and I was and Jenny was about to uh, be born, and, and uh, she was born in 82. So in 81, when I found out we were going to have a baby, I just said, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna check out. I can't work that much and and uh, be gone that much with a new baby coming, so I quit. And But even even through all the years, I've still toured a lot, but I probably do 60 shows a year maybe, between 60 and 80. Now with the Time Jumpers, the swing band that I play with on Monday nights, we go out and do 20 or 30 shows a year, and I'll do 60 shows a year. And, and the benefit stuff that I do takes up a good bit of, re of the rest of the year, and it's a, it's a good balance, but I don't work near as much as I used to. At the prime of the tour business, if you will, the record is pretty clear. Most people who tour that much in the music business, there's drugs, alcohol, sex. Did you go through all of those phases? Not in that order. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you know, it's <laughs> it's funny. I, I was with a friend this last week who, uh, we talked about all that kind of stuff, and he was shocked to find out that I've never done any drugs. Never smoked pot, never snorted any cocaine, never popped any, none of that stuff was ever very appealing to me, and I quit drinking in the late 80s. Um, I never liked the thought of any of that kind of stuff, so I was pretty boring, you know, in, in that world. Um, I mean, it, when you're trying to get going, you're going to jump at every chance they give you. You because you've never you've never known the opportunities before, and you think they're going to stop. You think you have to say yes to everything because you have the fear it's going to stop. Yeah, I mean you watched it. Everybody else it stops for everybody. Everybody has a nice run, and then they quit playing your records, and away you go. So, I would I would work close to 200 dates a year in those years that I was really starting to knock it out of the park, have big hit records. You know, it's like I came here in '83. Moved to Nashville, got a record deal with RCA, and um, nothing happened. I made record. I make the joke every night. Made records for seven years, but I couldn't prove it because nobody had them, and <laughs> I just stuck with it. And, and then finally, this big record showed up. You know, big career record, and and the phone rang. You know, people wanted that to book you. That record was when I call your name, and that changed everything. as traditional country music as it ever could get. You know, it was a waltz. It had Patty Loveless singing this beautiful harmony on it. And it, you know, it knocked all the walls down. It was hysterical to see. But nobody answered when I call your name. You have a reputation of being a perfectionist, are you? No. I don't think so. I think I, I do things to, to a level that might perceive to be towards that. 
but I think it's because my ears are so good. I, I just hear the way I hear. I know how to work it, manipulate it, fix it, whatever, to make something better. And to me, there's a fine line between, I mean, to me, perfect seems very, uh, very unappealing. Because perfect then becomes stale, it becomes sterile, it becomes, it can become a lot of things that aren't interesting to me. I like things that have rough edges. Um, but on one end, I like, I like things to have rough edges, but on, on, on subtle things that I may be the only one that would understand why I would want the end of a note to, to waver at, at, at this pulse rather than this one. For, you know, and I'm the only one that's going to go there, but I can't help it because my ears make me go there. I have to satisfy that, that part of me. I can't just cut it loose and go, well, nobody's ever going to hear that. That doesn't matter. Right. I say, well, no, I hear it, and it matters to me. I try to, I don't know, just follow my ears at the end of the day. Well, you're very humble about this, uh, but... Even people who don't particularly like your music give you this. They say, he's probably the nicest guy in the music business, not just in the country music mm. business, the music business. How do you feel about that? Do you sometimes say to yourself, well, maybe I'm too nice a guy? No. I'd rather, I'd rather him say that about me than, than say I was the biggest artist that ever lived. You know, that wouldn't, that wouldn't mean as much to me if they didn't think I was a, I was a humble, decent guy. That carries, that carries respect, it carries character, it carries all these things that matter to me. What makes you angry? Nice guy, <laughs> we, we, we've established that. But even nice guys get angry about something. Oh, yeah. What makes you mad? A lot of stuff. Um, people disrespecting my friends, that'll, that'll send, me, <laughs> send me off pretty, in a bad way. <laughs> I'm a hothead, there's no question about it, and it's pretty legendary. And, and uh, I do a lot better as I've gotten older. But I, I you know, I, I played golf with this guy that was a sports psychologist. I looked at him and I said, well, Doc, I know, I know all my buddies have told you the, all the great horror stories about me. And he laughed and he goes, yeah, you're legendary because you're one of the, the great, great hotheads of golf and this and that. He said, but he said, I'm going to tell you some things that are maybe going to surprise you a little bit. He says, it's why you're successful. He says, it really is the reason you've been successful in what you're doing because you're driven. You've got a fire in you that won't accept anything but your level best. And if you don't, if you don't get to that, it's, it's going to frustrate you. And he said, he said, on top of that, he said, you live the most ab abnormal life of any human being I know because think about what you do. You stand in front of people and all they do is cheer for you. And you're great and you're amazing and he said, that's, that's not very normal. He said, I think it, that for you, he said, I think it's pretty good for you to beat yourself up like that and, and be hard on yourself because I think that'll, that'll do, a, that'll do a, a great thing in keeping you level. And that's what, that's what this is, is that four iron. And Vince Gill's voice is not his only gift. Next up, another passion that he shared with his father and he's really good at it. That when the big interview continues. There is no doubt Vince Gill can play, and not just a guitar. 
Gill is a gifted scratch golfer who turns his talents to the fairways once a year for the Vinnie Invitational. That's a celebrity tournament that has raised millions of dollars for junior golf programs, including ones here at the Golf House of Tennessee. Gill and his late father were instrumental in developing the Golf House. The goal is to help young people become interested in golf. This facility allows children of any economic background to learn the game. And this spot is known as the Judge's Court, a tribute to Vince's father. The statue, tell yeah, me they, about this. Well, my dad used to come to the tournament and he kind of got me started playing golf. He wasn't very good. He was a cusser and a good club thrower, just like I am. And, and, uh, and everybody loved him when he come down. And to me, it's, it's more than a statue of me and my dad. It's really a statue of a parent and a child. And this place is so cool. If you come out here and you see kids with their grandparents taking them out there to, you know, it's just a little nine-hole golf course, and kids can come here and learn how to play the game, and kids who can't afford to play can come out here and play, and uh, it just has such a great spirit to it. And, and so that's, you know, I know it's my dad, but it still, it still exemplifies the spirit of someone reaching out to a kid and being supportive of them. Change gears, let's talk about your golf game. Okay. Now, the story goes that you're a scratch golfer. True or untrue? True. Uh, you have a hole in one, I know, at least one. Mm -hmm. You have others? I've made seven. Seven holes in one? Mm -hmm. Now, Vince, level with me. Seven? Yes, sir. <laughs> Ooh. Which one are you most proud of? The first one. The next one. <laughs> Let's talk about what has to be one of the most trying, challenging times of your life. And that's when your, uh, your brother was injured, seriously injured in a car accident. You were what age? Ten, probably. He just was out roaring and, and uh, had too much to drink, was driving and acting a fool and going 120 miles an hour and hit a semi and, and suffered the consequences. You know, he um, was in a coma for three or four months and not expected to live. And um, we talked earlier about why I didn't do some of the things I did. That might be a reason, because I watched the impact it had on him and his life, on my mom and her life. And, and so I, it wasn't worth the risk. He was in a coma for a long while. Mm -hmm. Three or four months, three months. He lived many years later. He died at 48 in 93. Uh, the record was the wreck was in the 60s, but because of it, he you know had enough uh, brain trauma and injury that um, he came back a lot further than anybody ever thought he would. But he still had still had struggles, you know, the rest of his life and memory loss, things like that, typical head injury things that that you know about today. But back in the 60s, nobody knew any of that stuff really, you know, and. Uh, he'd disappear for long periods of time and wind up at the mission and this and that. And then he finally came home the last couple of years of his life and stayed pretty close to mom. And he was pretty cool. He was pretty cool. How did it affect you? His death? Or his life? His death killed me. But his life 
inspired me. And to this day, Okay, you want to take a break or do you? I'm all right. Yeah. No, he, he inspired me because I watched him uh, watched him never bitch about it. He never bitched about getting a raw deal. He owned his own mistakes and and that was that was that was so beautiful. And uh Watching him live those those years of his life afterwards, that um, I don't know, just never hearing him complain about all of it was was great, you know. I know your life on earth was trouble. Gill began writing, "Go rest high on that mountain." after the death of country music star Keith Whitley in 1989. But he didn't complete it until the death of his own brother in 1993. Go Rest High on That Mountain won two Grammys and was named Song of the Year in 1996 at the Country Music Awards. Wish I could see. One of Gill's most famous performances of the song was in 2013, when, with Patti Loveless, he sang it at the funeral of his friend, country icon George Jones. That was beautiful in that it's tough to lose it in front of the world. It's not fun. But what I did that day, I gave everybody a chance to lose it. And that to me was the, the most beautiful part of that performance, was not me losing it, but letting everybody else say it's okay to. Well, if I told you my own three favorite songs of yours would be Go Rest Town That Mountain, certainly. Still Believe in You, mm -hmm. when I call your name. I Still Believe in You, how'd that come about? I wrote that song with a sweet friend of mine that I'd known since the 70s named John Jarvis, the best musicians I've ever heard. Plays piano and I used to go see him play when I lived out in LA as a 20 year old kid, he'd be out there playing and. Uh, we got together and wrote that song. What m nobody really knows is that song wasn't a ballad when we wrote it. It was. It had a lot more tempo to it. And I had just heard Bonnie Raitt's "If I Can't If I Can't Make You Love Me." You know that song? I do. And it was just it's one of the best things I ever heard. And we were getting ready to record. I still believe in you. And John's sitting at the piano, and we're all excited about recording it. And I told Tony, I said. I said, I don't know what it is, man, but I, I think I want to do this as a ballad. And I looked over and John was at the piano and his head just went, oh. <laughs> he was crushed. <laughs> he goes, it just went from first single to 
obscure album cut <laughs> in one <laughs> sentence, you know. So he thought. And so he thought. But he was wrong. And, uh, well, he, it, he, it turned out it worked out pretty good. That might have been the biggest selling record I ever had, that record of I Still Believe in You. And I think that as a song, uh, melodically, lyrically, as production, might be the best record I ever made. And I love that song. You have sung duets with your wife, Amy. House of Love, tell me about that. That was a real interesting stretch of life. You know, 1993, the, the fall of 93, I was doing a, a, a Christmas show in Tulsa, and I had to think of some guests to have, and I thought, well, this is a Christmas show. Uh, Amy Grant is about as, as good as it gets for that world, you know? so I. I didn't know her, and I called and said, would you come do this? She said, yeah, I'll make you a deal. I'm doing one three weeks later for the Nashville Symphony. I'll come and do yours if you'll come and do mine. I said, great. And so right after we finished the Tulsa show, she was working on this album. She said, I've got this song I'm doing, and I, it's too high for me. I can't sing. <laughs> that was the truth of it. She says, I can't sing that high. Would you come sing the harmony on this record? And I said, sure. So in a way, in those three events, we kind of really hit it off, you know? And, and I remember when she walked in the rehearsal room, um, I never really even had a conversation with her. Been around her a time or two, but never a conversation. But she, she walked in that room and looked at me and I was changed. You know, it was, I couldn't deny it. I couldn't, you know, and I was going, well, shoot, you know, this is, this is a drag, you know, <laughs> really like this girl, but nothing's going to happen. And away we went living our, our lives. But, you know, it was, it was really pretty fascinating that, that it was that, that connection was, it was the most, it was the most amazing thing. I wrote songs about it. I wrote, I wrote Whenever You Come Around, uh, one of my biggest songs about her smile that day that I saw that she walked into that rehearsal hall. The face of an angel Pretty eyes that shine I lie awake at night Wishing you were mine It was once a tabernacle of worship, but the Ryman Auditorium in downtown Nashville is best known as the longtime home to the Grand Ole Opry. The Grand Ole Opry became the number one show on radio and put country music on the map. The Opry moved to a more modern theater today, but from the 1940s through the 1970s, this stage was the center of the country music world. Playing on stage at the Ryman. <laughs> it's a pretty good gig if you can get it. 
the Ryman Auditorium is also a favorite stage for Vince Gill. Gill will play here close to a dozen times this year. This is my absolute favorite place in all the world to play. For 50 years, I've been playing somewhere. The first place I ever played was in the school auditorium and I think the second grade at a little assembly when I went and played my guitar. But out of all the places I've played, this would be my, my favorite choice. This is our Carnegie Hall. This place, this place has an edge. This place has something you can't define. You realize that this building's over 100 years old and just what's gone on here in those years is staggering to me. This is my church. <laughs> I don't go to a church, so this, this is mine. Well, the cathedral country music. Yeah, it's a magical place, and what I love about it is it's, it's been welcoming of all music. In the twilight glow I see her. As a child, it's been a long time ago, I can remember being at my maternal grandmother Paige's place and listening to the Grand Ole Opry. And at that time, Roy Acuff was the Grand Ole Opry. Sure, absolutely. He'd inherited the mantle of Jimmy Rogers the singing great. Mm -hmm. All around the water tanks, waiting for a train. Jimmy Rogers sang Waiting for a Train. I can remember it being sung in the mm -hmm. 30s. But then Roy Acuff with the Wabash Cannonball did as much to popularize country music in that era, the 30s and 40s, as any one song and any one artist. Absolutely. Well, you've got your guitar. I just holding it. it was an accident. Pick something you played for Roy Acuff. Oh God, he loved uh, all the lonely sound of my. Boy's calling is driving me insane. And just like rain, the tears keep falling, but nobody answers when I call your name. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, you've been so generous with your time, Vince. Do me a favor. I mean, I can't resist this. We're on stage, Ryman Auditorium. Um, Mother Church of Country Music, Cathedral of Country Music, Roy Acuff's home. Let's sing, and you know, I can't carry a tune in a bucket with a little oh, I'll cover you up. Cover me. <laughs> Let's sing the first chorus of the Wabash Cannonball. From the great Atlantic Ocean to the wide Pacific shore, from the clean of flowered mountains to the south belt by the shore. Hear the mighty rush of the engine, hear that lonesome hobo's call. Traveling through the jungle along the Wabash Cannonball. Oh, we'll take our place. <laughs> Vince, thank you. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, thanks for me. Yes, sir. And that's the big interview for tonight. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv.
Well, that wraps up another fantastic episode of Dan Rather's The Big Interview. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And of course, leave us a review and tell a friend. Thank you for joining us for Dan Rather's The Big Interview, where music and conversation come together.